Hello, and welcome to Rethinking Legal Ops, a podcast by Speed Legal. I'm Ashwari Saxena, and here we talk to legal experts, industry leaders, and innovators about the many ways that legal tech is transforming the way we practice law. Today we have with us an amazing guest, Colin Levy, the head of legal at Malbec. I know you've all heard of him and all his amazing uh, industry leadership and community building work. It's such a pleasure to have you here, Colin. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, just to you know get things started, um, you're, you're very well known and I am sure like all our uh, you know listeners have already heard of this, but from my perspective, I'm very curious to learn a little bit more about uh, your uh, professional journey. How did you um, end up with legal tech and uh, what, what it took to get you to where you are today? Absolutely. So it was definitely a journey. Um, <laughs> it probably started um, just prior to law school when I was working for a big firm in New York City as a paralegal creating uh, e-discovery databases. Uh, and that gave me my first kind of exposure to technology in the context of legal services. Uh, and it was kind of a curious experience because the work was interesting, but the lawyers really had very little interest in how the work got done. They just knew that there was this tool, they had to use it to accomplish what they needed to accomplish and just were asking me and others, hey, when is this done? Is it done yet? Is it done yet? Um, so, you know, fast forward through law school, there was very little talk of technology at all. Uh, really, all that was really mentioned was just uh, LexisNexis and Westlaw with regards to legal research, which is kind of just a very, very tip of a very big iceberg, if you will, when it comes to legal tech. So during law school, I kind of found that curious and interesting because I saw technologies growing influence and impact upon other industries. And I thought, surely, I'm not the only person who thinks that law is getting left behind and is kind of, um, you know, seemingly isolating itself from technology. So after I heard from law school and then started to work, I saw how little tech was used and how it was sorely needed to solve a variety of different issues that came up during the course of my ongoing uh, in-house career particularly with respect to the management of contracts, but also with respect to just automating documents, incoming requests, tracking different uh, data metrics and so on. Uh, so in order to learn about it, I thought, what better way for me to learn than to reach out to others who are trying to do something about it, whether they were creating their own legal tech products, uh, teaching about it in law school, or some combination of those two. And it was through those conversations that my interest really grew and I decided to share a lot of what I was learning and hearing in those conversations publicly on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on my website. Uh, and that really kind of got the ball rolling with respect to my legal tech uh, journey. Great. Yeah. What, what a journey. And uh, but, you know, some of the stuff about, you know, just the deadlines and people asking again and again can totally relate. Uh, in fact, that's actually one of the reasons why I became interested in, in, in legal tech as well. I've been that intern in the back room of, of, a, of a large law firm doing circle ups <laughs> during uh, during weekends and breaks and stuff like that. Um, and uh, also saw my parents uh, do similar type of stuff. They're, they're attorneys as well definitely can relate and um, and just going off of that what kind of legal tech tools are you most excited about today 
Uh, well, certainly I'm, I'm excited about the, the solution that Malbec creates, which is a contract uh, management tool that assists um, companies manage their contracts all the way from, you know, initial creation to drafting and negotiation to execution to implementation and tracking different financial and other milestones with respect to agreements in an automated uh, data-driven way. So that is certainly one area that is near and dear to my heart because a lot of the issues that Malbec and other companies seek to solve in the contracts area are problems that I myself faced time and time again when I was working in-house. So that's one area that I'm very excited about. Another, I would say, is just simply document automation, just the automated creation of documents because that can be very time-consuming. It can be very inefficient. Uh, and there's no need for you to spend time reinventing the wheel when you have common documents you need to get created time and time again. Why not just have a tool that can create it and not only create the document, but fill in the requisite information so they don't have to continuously, you know, load up a document, type in the same information over and over again, you know, company name, parties, what have you. So that's a second area. And then the third area that I think I'm, I'm excited about, even though I really want nothing to do with litigation is litigation analytics, the use of data to help drive more strategic decision-making with respect to um, litigation strategy and case outcomes. And I really think there's so much potential there for data to help provide a more informed, more strategic uh, delivery of legal advice that doesn't rely on a lawyer's kind of just gut feeling because the gut feeling is just that. And it may or may not be accurate. And really, I think clients deserve and expect more than that. And they can get that with litigation analytics. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Very exciting uh, technologies um, out there. But there still is this, you know, when I meet lawyers, uh, you know, there's like two two kinds. And like there was this meme I once saw. It said, you know, lawyers that have a GitHub and then lawyers that don't. Uh, and, you know, like based on whether they have one or not, they are on uh, on it or not, uh, you can understand their level of acceptance for um, legal tech. So that's kind of been my experience. Some people are just like, all right, you know, hit me with all the tech tools. I want to make my workflows more efficient. And then there are some that are like, not really like not really ready for that type of stuff what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles to more wide-scale adoption of legal tech at the moment so i think one is fear i think fear of the unknown fear of kind of uh having to change how someone operates or how what someone uses to get certain things done i think there's a fear of that impeding one's ability to grow business or uh, financially succeed. So that is certainly, I think, one impediment. I think related to that, there is this kind of cultural resistance to tech because it's seen as sort of an interloper as this kind of thing that's interfering with how things have been done historically. And so I do think there is that cultural kind of impediment as well. Uh, and then lastly, I think that tech sometimes is seen as sort of something requiring you to you know, learn how to code, become some kind of tech genius. And that really is not required at all. I mean, sure, if you want to learn how to code, it can be useful for certain cases, in certain instances, but do you have to? Absolutely not. Should everyone learn how to code? No. Um, do you need to, to be able to make use of legal tech? Absolutely not. And so I do think there is also this sort of misunderstanding about tech and it's kind of thinking about it in terms of you know, lines of code and kind of difficult programming uh, instead of being seen as set as just yet another set of tools amongst toolbox 
that's available to be used uh, depending on what you're trying to get done. Yep, totally. And uh, when you when you say toolbox, um, you know, they, uh, one of the things that I also noticed at Legal Week and that I've uh, noticed in general is that there's a lot of conversation about, you know, creating like the ideal legal tech toolkit and, you know, training your employees to be able to use it properly. Uh, but often, you know, law firms for like large companies, they will buy a legal tech tool, but then won't really have the patience to either implement it properly or their employees just sort of get frustrated with it. Um, what do you think are some of the methods that law firms or um, you know, businesses can use to train their employees to fully leverage their legal tech toolkits? Well, I think it starts with understanding how your people operate, understanding kind of what they, how they like to work, what tools they like to use, why they like to use those particular types of tools, understanding kind of where they're coming from and use that as a basis to help kind of make the case for different tools that perhaps are better at accomplishing what they need to get done, but are not that dissimilar to tools they already use. In other words, you wanna reduce the learning curve and make it less steep. Uh, I think in addition, you really wanna have your, your people understand that this is not about you wanting something because you want it, but more about this is better, this is better for the business and it's really gonna help you and be, make you happier and more productive. And if you can make the case to them that it's really something they should want to use and be interested in, that will make it easier to adopt as opposed to making it just about, you know, some random leader in a, in a firm saying, well, hey, I heard about legal tech, let's use this tool. You know, that's the way it is. And that's going to make people resent the notion of using something different and having to change because it's not really their idea. It, they haven't really been brought into the fold. Which brings me to my last point about this, which is that I really think when you're looking at legal tech tools, it's very, very important to bring your users on early and have them feel like they have a voice and ensure that they do have a voice in the process of evaluating and selecting what tool is finally used. Because at the end of the day, the tool is only as good as those that use it. And if you have a tool that's not used by anyone, it's just gonna sit on a shelf somewhere and you'll have wasted a lot of time and money um, putting it in place and it won't be returning any, uh, it, it basically won't have any impact on the bottom line ultimately. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very good point you make. A tool is only as good as the, uh, you know, the people that use it. And so any sort of, you know, implementation of any sort of tech tool, not just legal tech, even fintech, it all depends on, you know, how the approach is taken towards training the people and working with people rather than just imposing uh, a solution on them. And just speaking of training, how much do you think um, this could, you know, this could be changed through education, through legal education? Because um, there are some tech tools that we're already using at, at law schools, like now we're using Westlaw, uh, Lexus, things like that. Those are pretty indispensable. Quimby, uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, but people are using different types of tech, uh, tech solutions to, you know, make case law research easier or studying for the exams and stuff easier. Do you think it might also be a good idea for law school curriculums to maybe start uh, implementing some legal tech tools, like uh, something like Malbec or something, you know, like what we're doing at Speed Legal or, uh, you know, Ironclad, things like that, just in the regular uh, training process for future lawyers? Yeah, so I think um, there certainly is, I think, some importance on learning about technology in the context of the delivery of legal services, and that in part underlies why 30 plus states in the U.S. have this duty of tech competency to be aware of 
the risks and benefits of using tech and relevant tech in their own practices. Um, but I also think you have to be careful because technology changes rapidly. So you don't want to be teaching, I think, necessarily specific tools completely. You do want to perhaps be teaching about types of tools because those types won't necessarily change the tools that actually are into fit into those categories like it will change over time. So I think it's really more important to talk about kind of the concepts of technology and practice of law, the ways it can help you be more productive, be more efficient, uh, better meet the needs of your potential clients. Um, and, and that I think is the, uh, a much better approach. And that is the approach that I've seen that has been successful at various law schools that have done this and started teaching about tech. For example, Suffolk University Law School, uh, you see Vanderbilt teaching about it. You see um, Northwestern, Northeastern, um, a variety of different law schools, Stanford, um, all teaching, but they're teaching it from sort of a more of a conceptual, broader framework as opposed to teaching about specific tools. And I think that's for good reason, because as I said, technology is continuing to rapidly advance. And by the time you've done teaching a specific tool, that tool may or may not be the one that's commonly used anymore. Yes. Totally. And how much of this uh, sort of paradigm shift in just the culture uh, within the legal community, whether that's, you know, through law school curriculum or, you know, industry leaders, where do you think legal tech companies uh, fit in into changing the career uh, the culture around uh, adoption of technology? So I think that, you know, the, the buyer and seller of legal tech is, it, it should be a relationship, a two-way relationship. So I think that means uh, in practical terms, that both the vendor and the buyer have a in, have a duty to kind of help one another out in terms of elaborating on the specific needs that exist, on how this specific tool can meet those needs, how to use the tool, and and how to kind of understand technology in the context of what problems a certain buyer is trying to solve. And I think we see more and more legal tech companies focusing on that sort of educational process and that you know buying legal tech is not just one done process an ongoing relationship in education is a, plays a big part in that yeah, totally and uh, just you know about that as well how much of legal tech companies because um i see some of like the biggest industry leaders i mean you olga uh you know electra uh i see that you also do a lot of just personal leadership, you know, just sort of also putting your own story out there and, you know, getting people to know who you are so they also, you know, can, can see the tech tool that you, you stand behind. Um, how important do you think it is for any sort of legal tech uh, entrepreneur or, you know, someone working at a legal tech company to have that sort of personal brand uh, also attached with their product? So I'm a huge advocate of personal brand. I think it's incredibly important regardless of what you're trying to do because you should be able to make the case for why someone should care about you, why someone should listen to you when there's a million other people that can listen to you. And I think in a, a really good approach to building a personal brand is sharing some of you, being truly who you are. And so that's why I and Olga and others, I think really kind of bring a lot of ourselves to what we do because we are more than just the sum of our posts on social media and more of the sum of our webinars and what have you. We really are more about sort of ourselves as full human beings. And so that's something that's very important to me. It's something I certainly don't shy away from doing on social media because I think people really kind of want to feel like you're human, want to kind of form a bond with you. And the only way that can happen 
is that they understand kind of where you're coming from and can relate to it. And that I think is best done when you were kind of sharing yourself, even parts of yourself that are perhaps more private and sensitive because others can relate to those issues because I like the is you're not alone in having whatever feelings or thoughts you may have. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've been sort of having this conversation again and again in, in this podcast as well. You know, businesses are people and every solution, as you were very aptly saying, should be very people oriented. And going back to, uh, you know, talking about law firms, which are, of course, also all about people. Um, but uh, for a long time, there's been a very reliable business model that has existed for law firms that's worked out quite well. And that's the, the hourly billing um, business, business model. Uh, how do you think legal tech is changing uh, that business model for, for law firms? So I don't think it's necessarily kind of a one-to-one relationship in terms of tech existing and therefore having a direct impact upon the billable hour model. I do think though that there is sort of this evolving relationship where clients are understanding more about how legal services are performed and therefore are wanting them to be performed more efficiently, more productively with the understanding that, you know, this is not rocket science with all due respect. You know, a lot of these, a lot of this legal work is repetitive and routine and doesn't require an hours and hours to do. So therefore they shouldn't have to pay for so many hours to get something done. I also think that tech is making in some ways ensuring a better alignment between the needs of consumers of legal services and those seeking to deliver, deliver legal services in ways that are new uh, and more specific and better attuned to specific needs. And we see more and more, I think, niche legal service providers existing that are using tech to help meet the needs of clients that otherwise couldn't perhaps find the right help because it was too expensive. And so I think there's also this sort of ongoing cultural re-education around the bill wire model and this sort of perverted incentives that it promotes with respect to how work is done. And I, for one, you know, when I'm seeking outside counsel, whether, you know, for whatever reason, I am definitely more drawn to someone who is feeling sort of in a more transparent project-based way. Because for one thing, I know how this work gets done and I know that doesn't require 45 hours to do, you know, X, Y, or Z. And two is I'm just frankly not willing to pay those kinds of rates. And so I think that we're going to see an increase on those pressures on big law firms to modify the ways in which they offer their services. Um, that being said, I'm also not so naive as to say, oh, the bill wire model is just going to go away tomorrow. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. I think it's here to, here to stay for quite some time. But that being said, I think we're seeing more and more competition to it. And I think that's healthy and that's better um and and ensures better um as i said alignment between consumers and deliverers of legal services yep absolutely and uh, that's that's a good way of looking at it sort of not you know as extreme but no it's it's all it's all going to change but you know it's going to slowly uh, evolve which is the whole purpose of you know the digital transformation of law uh when you mentioned competition uh, in the law firms uh can you unpack a little bit that point a little bit more about how exactly legal tech tools can help firms get uh, that competitive edge over the others. Yeah, you know, for example, um, there are some firms, including one that I'm using right now, that uses um, tools like Clio to assist with billing and matter management and um, secure storage of documents and things. And for me, that's quite attractive because that means that you know this firm 
is providing more transparent services and is uh, able to make use of tools with the recognition that these tools are helping them be more productive and therefore by being more productive or more efficient and lowering the cost for me to get what I need from them. And so I think that, you know, technologies are increasingly being seen as a competitive edge for many companies um, because they're able to say, hey, we use these tools which allow us to provide more nuanced uh, results, if you will, to you, but at lower cost uh, because we're automating, you know, creation of documents, we're able to better track things, we're able to better interact with you asynchronously so you're not waiting for that phone call or having to, you know, book a call three months from now just to say hello and see how things are going. You can log into a dashboard and see where things are. And so I think that is definitely uh, becoming, like I said, I think a attractive um, competitive edge for, for many uh, firms. In addition, you know, I think clients, especially more sophisticated ones, are looking for better use of data, provide more strategic data-driven analysis. And that also is more attractive than kind of an old school lawyer saying, oh yeah, I know this judge, I won five times before them, you know, and there's reason I shouldn't win again. You know, that's just not good enough, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially the, the data-driven insights. I think that that is just so much more important today. And, uh, um, you know, speaking with, uh, with another lawyer and they were telling me that uh, legal advice is no longer just legal advice. You have to offer a legal solution that is supported by reliable data. Uh, otherwise, clients are not happy and, you know, it's 2022. So uh, it's a very exciting uh, new transition to, you know, where, uh, you know, lawyers can also get to use those types of, those types of you know, words um, and uh, expand their skill sets. Uh, also a little bit curious about, as is from the perspective of in-house legal teams, I think most of the obvious benefits are, of course, more efficient workflows, um, you know, getting things done quicker, cutting costs. But what is, if you had to uh, put it into words or, you know, like maybe like the three major takeaways from your experience, maybe working with in-house legal teams, what are some areas where legal tech is, uh, is most effective uh, at the moment with the available tools that we have today? Sure. Yeah. I think, um, you know, just going by my own experience, I think certainly automation of documents um, is, is a huge time saver uh, and enabler. I think also uh, automated management of contracts, such as small business tools, certainly makes my life a lot easier because I'm spending less time kind of tracking. Oh, yeah, I was working on that contract. I didn't know what is this the right version? Oh, wait, there's this other version wait, who, who do I need to review this for? You know, I don't need to worry about all that because the system already tells me who last reviewed it, who last commented on, allows me to track the versions in case something, someone made a change that I, you know, I think is wrong. I mean, to go back to an older version and making sure we're editing the prior good version. So there's that. And also, quite frankly, I think technology also can just simply assist with enabling better cross-functional working. In other words, you know, members of the sales team, myself, finance, whomever, can all sort of collaborate asynchronously on different projects without needing to wait and find out, you know, what the status of it is. There are tools that provide dashboards for people to simply log into and see the status of things and collaborate together. And that can be very, very useful, particularly when you're working in a distributed work environment with people working in all different time zones across the world or across the country. Yep. 
Absolutely. And when we talked about, you know, reducing the sort of workload and, you know, just being an ally rather than, you know, replacing lawyer for lawyers for legal tech, um, we just had recently, you know, conversations about, you know, the, you know mental health awareness week. Uh, how do you see legal tech tools also supporting mental health in legal house, uh, in-house legal teams and, and law firms? Because you know, it's no secret, the, uh, mental health is, is a problem, you know, in, in general, but also in the you know, legal industry. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely a problem. It's certainly one that I've spoke to both uh, personally as well as professionally. And I think legal tech can really help by allowing you to be more productive with your time and saving you time, therefore allowing you to spend your time more productively, whether it's doing work or whether quite frankly on yourself or spending time with, with loved ones and family. You know, that's super important now more than ever, perhaps. And I think legal tech can really allow you to accomplish what you need to accomplish quicker allowing you to save time and spend that time uh, on more important things such as family uh, and, and with friends. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just, just with like, you know, the, with the legal industry, I think a lot of like, you know, like the taking pride and, you know, working long hours and, you know, pulling all nighters, you know, surviving on coffee. I think a lot of that starts at law school and then, you know, it uh, you know sort of continues on, you know, in, in work life, but it's, it's so good to see that that is, you know, quickly changing and, you know, staying late at work is no longer considered, you know, like the cool thing to do because there are better ways of um, getting, getting things done. Um, you know, moving on, um, uh, just curious, uh, what are some of the craziest um, or, you know, some of the most unbelievable types of or the most interesting misconceptions that you've come across that people have towards artificial intelligence uh, and or, or legal tech? So one personal one that came up um, a few years ago was I was, uh, I tweeted something about legal tech and some, I think it was a law student um, somewhere replied back and accused me of being bought out by the legal tech industry. Uh, first of all, legal tech industry is not, was not what it is now back then. So number one, number two is if only that were that easy, <laughs> that is not the case at all. And, and three, I, you know, I, I found it funny and actually in some ways reflective of this fear of tech because, you know, the law student was coming at it from a perspective of, well, you're talking about tools that are going to, you know, rob me of a job. And, and that is really not the point of, of tech here. Um, I'm not certainly going to shy away from saying that at some point will tech perhaps replace some people and some jobs? Absolutely. It definitely will. Are we at that point yet? Not particularly, unless your job really is just routine, standardizable, time-consuming things, in which case you probably should be asking yourself, what job am I doing really? Because that's exactly what tech is best at right now is replace, you know, doing the automated, uh, doing the routine, standardizable sort of time-consuming tasks. Um, I think another kind of myth about AI is that we're talking about robots. We're not talking about robots. We're talking about um, making use of data um, and putting algorithms to work to data to draw conclusions and analyses from these large data sets. That's really where AI is right now. At future points, will AI be able to make more sort of autonomous decisions? Sure, absolutely. We're definitely working towards that that goal. Are we completely there yet? No, we're not. But is that in the future? Yeah, it definitely is. 
So I think that's something important to consider with regards to AI. And I think lastly, the other thing I'll say is um, I think AI sometimes is misunderstood and seen as kind of this catch-all for all different types of technologies and when it's not. You know, I, I think right now we're talking about kind of so-called simple AI, which is just data-driven analysis and analytics, where more complex AI is sort of the more autonomous sort of robot-like thinking and analysis that you see in movies that we're not, but we're not there yet. Yeah, yeah. And, and what an interesting experience, because one would think that the younger, uh, the younger you know, people, like students especially, would be more open to, you know, like tech adoption and things like that. But it's a very interesting point you bring up, you know, that like fear of potentially like, you know, being robbed of a job. Uh, but, but, you know, like from my perspective, uh, when I was in law school, um, you know, um, a while ago, <laughs> Um, and people were talking about, you know, applications of AI in accounting, uh, you know, and uh, and, and law. Um, I remember thinking and having this conversation with my friends that, like, maybe those sort of, like, first-year associate jobs might not exist, but then won't legal tech companies also need lawyers? So, you know, we just go work over there. But I guess we were just more <laughs> optimistic than the student that you came across. But so that's a very... Uh, very, very interesting experience. Uh, one of the misconceptions that I often come across is, you know, when I tell people I work at a legal tech company and we use AI and machine learning, they're like, oh, great. So like, you can just take care of all my legal stuff, right? Like, I don't have to worry about anything. So, um, and, and of course, like you were saying, I mean, it's it's not magic, it's, it's technology, it can work well with you, but it can't entirely just like, you know, be an autopilot, maybe at some point, uh, but perhaps not now. Uh, how do you, you, uh, you know, in general legal tech companies, how can they do that sort of expectation management with potential clients that just expect AI to work like magic? Can you kind of teach them that uh, that's not that's not what uh, things are? Starts with frankly just being honest and realistic with them and saying, you know, all right, these are the issues you're trying to solve. Well, here are specific ways in which we can go about solving those problems, or here are these ways in which we could potentially contribute to helping to solve those problems, but we may not be able to solve all of it, or we're working on some things, but you know, we do some things better. I just think it comes down to just honesty and transparency, frankly. And sometimes it also comes down to sort of getting a really good sense of exactly what it is that someone is trying to solve for. And sometimes they might not even know. And so you have to help them kind of get a better understanding of what exactly their own problem is. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And, um, you know, transitioning uh, from that and going back to, again, like, you know, the idea of the personal brand, because uh, I, I really love all the personal brand work that you do and just how honest and candid you are uh, with, you know, the community that you've created. Uh, what is your advice um, for someone that is starting on their journey to build their personal brand uh, and, you know, create their own, you know, little community that, you know, whether that's legal tech or just anything in general? I think it starts quite frankly with just um, engaging, asking questions of those that you're interested in learning more about, listening to what they have to say. Uh, it starts with commenting, not necessarily creating your own posts, but commenting and posts of others on LinkedIn or on Twitter that you find interesting. Uh, I think those are the two methods to go about learning more because that's what I did and it worked out well. And just kind of not expecting anything from people, but just simply asking if you can have, you know, five, 10 minutes of their time just to learn more about their journey. 
and they likely will be open to speaking with you at some point about their journey. Um, because I think especially in legal tech, we're eager to bring more into the community. But I think in general, no matter what type of community you're trying to build, I think simply just asking for people to tell you about their experience and their journey, I think is a great way to learn more and a great way for you to kind of build a relationship with someone else because people want to be heard ultimately. You know, it's not about you, it's about them. Uh, and so I, I do think that starting from that perspective can be very useful and helpful. Uh, and, and also I think you really want to start with kind of looking at what exactly is your outcome? What's your purpose in doing what you are about to be doing? Because if you have a defined purpose that can make you uh, be more helpful in asking to set up conversations because there's a specific reason behind it. And it's not just kind of a catch-all for just wanting to learn more in general about anything. It's like you have a specific reason for wanting to learn more about this from that person. That makes sense. And um, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, a, a lot of that is also applicable to working with clients because, uh, you know, of course, part of, you know, just, just working with, with clients, you know, who are just adopting legal tech, you know, there's, of course, some that are, you know, more just uh, used to using different types of legal tech tools, have been doing it for a while. But then for folks that are just sort of starting out, um, you have to also, uh, what is the level of enrollment that, uh, you know, one needs to have, uh, with those clients to, you know, sort of guide them every step of the way from a, from adopting the particular legal tech tool, uh, to getting, getting the most, uh, getting the most out of it. Yeah. I think it's an ongoing relationship. You know, it's not one that has a defined start or end point. It is one that evolves as the person your people evolve in terms of their use of the tool. So the first step is understanding what their problems are and trying and proposing solutions. Second step is implementing that solution, getting it up and running and used. And then the third is just continuing to learn more and evolve with the person over time in terms of, you know, how their needs evolve, what their people are like and how they evolve in terms of how they work and kind of tweaking things along the way because things are very dynamic. And so it's important for both the tool that you put in place as well as the people using the tool to both be dynamic and kind of understand that change comes over time and change is natural, even if sometimes it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. And and what would you say is the key for, you know, legal tech tool to be, uh, you know, like most successful? Is it just ease in adoption that, you know, it's just something that pl it's plug and play, like, you know, you, you get it, it starts working, it does its job, and it's very seamless? Or do you think it's more just that sort of personal relationship, uh, you know, that you are uh, talking about with, with a particular company where it might be a little bit more involved to implement uh, a solution, but then the type of support you get from a company is, you know, um, it's, it's great. Uh, so which do you think, how would you weigh those two? So I definitely think it's far more about the relationship than it is about anything else. You know, it's about this relationship of trust, of engagement, of listening. I think that's what really drives a successful um, business and drives a successful relationship between a buyer and a seller, especially in legal tech. Um, so I think it comes down to really just having an honest, forthright relationship where both parties trust one another, like one another, and just like to have chats every once in a while to just check in and see how things are going. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And and how do you, uh, you know, how do you deal with uh, sometimes, you know, um, say, you know, you've got a 
product and a client is using it, but say their needs evolved and then, you know, a, a particular tech solution might not be something that's applicable. Um, what is the, how flexible do you think or how dynamic do you think legal tech companies should be that, you know, we could totally just like implement that new solution? Or do you think it makes a little bit more sense to create, you know, something like similar to Clock, sort of like a consortium of legal tech companies, you know, that just sort of work together with each other uh, rather than, you know, uh, devising their own solutions or sort of recreating the wheel each time. So I think there's definitely a strong need for collaboration for sure. Um, uh, and, and, you know, you don't want to promise the world to someone and not deliver. So it's better, I think, sometimes to under promise and over deliver in some ways. Um, that doesn't mean not, you know, saying, oh, yeah, we can probably do that. But it means saying, Sure, we can work on that. It's not going to be tomorrow or the next day, but we'll get there. And we'll work with you to make sure that we get it right for you. Um, and I think that that's a better way of approaching it. And I, for one, am all about collaboration and legal tech. You know, I get that, you know, certainly the space that I'm in, as well as other spaces, are crowded and competitive. But at the end of the day, we're all trying to help improve the legal industry and better align the needs and delivery of legal services. So, I think that, you know, to the extent to which we can all succeed in doing so, I think should be encouraged. And yeah, there'll be certain winners and losers, so to speak, over time. But, you know, that's natural. That's just a part of life. And I think ultimately, you know, I'm happiest when I see success in legal tech, even if it's not necessarily the success of one company over another. Totally. Yeah. All, all for it. Cannot, cannot agree more. Uh, and, you know, part of the reason why we do this podcast, it's to also, you know, like welcome, you know, other folks to, you know, tell us about what they're doing and, you know, sort of lead this, you know, movement of digital transformation of law uh, together, which is why I find the type of work you're doing very uh, inspiring as well. And my uh, you know, sort of concluding question to you would be, uh, this is a question that uh, one of our professors at Berkeley Law almost always asked at the end of every you know module uh, it was a constitutional law class and he would ask us um you know do you have uh you know what are your hopes fears and dreams regarding a particular subject so i'm sort of just borrowing that and asking you now uh colin what are your biggest hopes dreams and fears for uh you know legal tech going forward in like say the next decade or so that's a very broad question i think i will answer it uh this way which is that uh, my hopes and dreams for legal tech is that the community continues to grow, continues to support one another, and continues to ask the question, why? Uh, with regards to fear, um, I fear that perhaps uh, legal will not necessarily keep good enough pace with tech in terms of um, potential losing sight of tech because tech continues to evolve and it's too late to kind of, uh, you know, maintain the same pace as tech evolvement but i do think it's not too late to at least keep it within sight so i do hope that that remains the case going forward and i and i know countless others including yourself are doing all we can to ensure that that remains the case going forward Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, this has been a, wonder conversation, a wonderful conversation with you, Colin. Thanks so much for all your insights. I learned a lot. I'm sure all our listeners learned a lot today as well. Thanks so much for joining uh, Rethinking Legal Ops. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
And once again, thanks so much to all our amazing listeners. Thanks for all your interest in legal tech. Thanks for interest in uh, what we're doing at Speed Legal and for following Rethinking Legal Ops. Uh, it's always inspiring to see that other folks like us are also curious to learn more about uh, the wonderful things that are happening uh, with tech adoption in the legal industry. Uh, again, we're here every week, every Thursday, just right around this time with uh, an amazing speaker each time. And we'll see you uh, see you next week. And this is me, Ishwarya, your host, uh, signing off for today. Thanks for joining. The practice of law is changing, and we're here for it. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode of Rethinking Legal Ops. Follow us for more such insightful conversations about the transformative impact of legal tech. Also, follow Speed Legal and let us know in your comments and messages about how you leverage legal tech solutions to make your work more efficient. See you next time.